0: Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg and today I'm delighted to welcome a very, very senior and accomplished professional from the UK, Mr. David Price. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: David is the lead for culture at The Power of Us Agency He's an international advisor to the New York based cultural consultancy, Sparks and Honey. In 2009, David was awarded with the OBE which is the Order of the British Empire for services to education by Her Majesty the Queen. His first book was open, How We'll Work, Live and Learn in the Future and the next book is The Power of Us and all of you know I'm very very partial to authors. So we will spend a little time talking about David's books so David, before we talk culture, tell me a little bit about your own journey. Oh, goodness. It's uh, <laughs>
1: it's not a plan that uh, I would recommend to anyone. Um, I began my working life uh, I was very young because I hated school, which is ironic since I then went on to spend a lot of time in education. Mm-hmm. Um, but I left school at 16 and uh, I got a job as a civil servant. I was probably the worst civil servant in the history of the civil service and I just stood up one day at the age of 17 and announced that I was going to do what I really wanted to do, which was to be a musician. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guy who was running the the office said, "But what about your pension?" <laughs> I thought this was hilarious. I said, "I'm 17 now." Of course, I think, "Oh, yeah, what about the pension?" But um, I, I I did. I uh, I realised in hindsight that I had a, a quite an entrepreneurial streak. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I had no plan as to how to become a professional musician, within three months, that's that's what I'd done. Mm-hmm. And I did that for 15 years. And then I suppose I I I thought this isn't really a job for a grown-up. And um and I decided to to go to college, which mm-hmm. was I was I was quite a mature student at that point. But even then, I I had no idea what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And I sort of fell into working with community groups and adult education. And then eventually um, started doing um, f- more formal education at what Americans would call community colleges. We call mm-hmm. them further education colleges. Mm-hmm. And then um, f- finally found the, the job i had been looking for all my life, which was to start up a new um, uh, College, which was a performing arts college, with Sir Paul mm. McCartney and and Sir Ken Robinson. So wow. two people who I I admired tremendously. Mm. Um, and I actually had had known Ken a little bit before then, and um, and but more than anything, I wanted that clean sheet of paper. I wanted to start something mm. from scratch because I could see what was wrong with education. But I wanted to have the chance to do it without all of the baggage that usually comes with bringing change to what is a very, very conservative occupation. Mm. Um, and so so I did that and then um, did that for 10 years. And then I kind of went back to my roots, really. I, I decided that I would b- become a freelance consultant. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was almost back to the days of being a, a working musician, you know, mm. but I didn't put the guitar in the back of the car, I put the laptop in, <laughs> but it was it was about traveling around. And then yeah. that became broader. And then eventually, um, I was working with Sir Ken and he said, it's about time you wrote a book. And I mm. said, oh, no, I couldn't write a book. I wouldn't know mm-hmm. where to start. And he said, you start at the beginning, just start. Mm. And, uh, and he sort of mentored me through the book open. And it, it did very well and then i started uh thinking about what was next and like, i i found myself with a foot in both worlds in the corporate world and also in education because for me mm. it was all about learning and if 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 organizations could get that right mm. then most of the other things naturally followed mm. so i i was determined not to write two books as it were i wanted to 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 combine them into a single audience um, and people said, you're crazy, you know, n- corporate world doesn't want to hear about some school, you know, on the other side of the world. But that wasn't the case. Mm. And and in Power of Us, um, it was even more so. Mm. And um, of course, it had the added layer of complexity that uh, I finished the Power of Us, which, which is really, we'll t- hopefully we'll talk about it more in a moment. But mm. I finished it in... Um, February of 2020 mm-hmm. and of course we all know what happened in March of 2020. Correct. So it was it was a chance to test out some of these theories that I'd 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 developed mm. through looking at some of the world's most innovative organizations. Mm. In the corporate world in the NGO world and in the um in the voluntary sector as well. Mm. Um and and that that although it meant that I had the uh, go without sleep for three weeks while I rewrote the book. i'm mm-hmm. I'm very glad that I did. Um, and so the book's been out now for a, a couple of years, but it strangely, it feels like it's just come out because right. you know the world's only just started yeah. to open up
0: again. yeah, yeah, very interesting. So let's talk about your books first then. Your first book open, it talks about the importance of innovation and creativity in the workplace. Can you say some examples of companies that have successfully implemented an open culture?
1: Yes, I mean one of the striking examples for me um, was uh, Procter and Gamble, mm-hmm. who you know everyone associates Procter and Gamble as being this highly successful multinational global corporation, uh, corporate. But it it's less well known that they, they came very close to, to to extinction, and they they decided that they weren't able to keep up with the pace of innovation mm. and so they set up you may have come across it um they set up a, an initiative called connect and develop and at its time which was about 10 15 years ago it was it was considered very radical it was one of the first examples of open innovation mm. uh, the, the 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 idea was so simple but so effective which was they they just put the call out and they created a website and said to people if you've got an idea for a new product or you can help us with technical problems that we're having, please get in touch and we'll come to some sort of financial arrangement if, wow. it, if it succeeds. And um, it, it transformed the, the fortunes of the company so much so that still to this day, about half of all revenues for proper & Gamble come from outside of the company. And this is a company with an R and D department uh, mm. of nine thousand people. You know, it's it's mm. huge, mm. and yet they still weren't able to keep up with the pace of innovation, and so they changed their company motto to "proudly found elsewhere," which I think is fantastic. Mm. And uh, and yeah, the rest is history, as they say. They've 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 done really well by looking beyond the organization, mm. and I. I, I I cite them as an example of good practice. It's not perfect, but it, it is an example of now how I guess and, and COVID really brought this to the fore. Mm. We have to break down some of these silos. We have to look beyond our own sphere of of, of interest and, mm. and and activity. Um, and if we do, if we can, if we can summon up the courage to do that, then there are the most amazing partnerships which which became possible during covid and i hope we'll continue beyond that
0: mm, amazing you no? Know, procter and gamble is an amazing company and since since you spoke so highly about them i must mention that uh, my b- both my sons and their spouses three of the four work for procter and gamble in different parts oh, wow <laughs> small <laughs> world indeed but yeah. uh, david uh, you know you also in your second book the power of us you Discuss the impact of collaboration and teamwork in achieving success. Yep. Can you uh, share with me, for my viewers and listeners, some tips on how to build effective teams?
1: Yes, I mean, oh, it's it's such a difficult thing to to summarize in just a a, a soundbite, as it were. Because mm-hmm. of all the definitions of collaboration, my favorite one comes from, um, I think it was an American general whose name's escaped me for now, but he described it as um, collaboration is an unnatural act between non-consenting adults. Mm. And, and everyone knows it's a good, it's the right thing to do, but people find it very difficult to do. Mm. And what I found in studying the companies that I looked at was if you create the right culture, then people it, that makes collaboration easier mm. and, and by the right culture i mean a place where you know people are not afraid of making mistakes mm. where there is a strong learning environment where uh, i guess um the 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 silos that frequently divide us are, are broken down you know one of the the, the the most interesting entrepreneurs of the last couple of hundred years was Thomas Edison. Correct. And it, when, when he created the inventions factory in Menlo Park, you know, mm. it, he, he had accountants working alongside chemists who worked alongside electricians who worked alongside engineers, and, and they all took part in those kinds of discussions. Mm. So he, he kind of stimulated that natural curiosity. And it was really, I think, in in the years beyond that, particularly in the mid 20th century, when we started, you know, land, and we started sectioning off specific areas of responsibility and the the Taylorist approach of dividing an organization up into very clear, specific um, activities that's when we started to lose that that a spark of of creativity that mm. collaboration at its best can generate. Mm. Uh, but of course, it's it's not to say that it's easy. You know, we're dealing collaboration depends on human beings. And uh, as we know, they're extremely complex Correct. Correct. individuals. Mm. Um, but but I, I just feel going forward, especially mm. in a world of AI, we, we have no choice. We, right. we have no choice but to develop a collaborative culture within our organizations.
0: Mm. Well said. You also talk of collective intelligence, and I wanted to ask you, how do you define collective intelligence? And why do you think it's important for individuals and organizations to embrace it?
1: Yes, well, the it it's, it comes under quite quite a lot of different labels. Clay Shirky described it as the, the cognitive surplus, mm-hmm. which is to say, you know we all have interests beyond our immediate uh, job beyond mm. that 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 we get paid for mm. and this is true now uh, more so than ever um you know it, it typically it's it's characterized in in the uk as the guy who goes down to the bottom of his garden and opens his shed and then tinkers away at something um uh, but but putting that cognitive surplus we, and you know we call it a surplus because it's not generally it's not in need or used mm. within the workplace. So being able to tap into that cognitive surplus, mm. you know whether it's inside the workforce or outside, it, uh, as as Procter and Gamble showed, is is what can open up new avenues, new ways of thinking. Mm. Um, and so I think the 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 kind of collective intelligence is the thing that's going to drive us i i speak in the book about um the 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 way in which we've moved from sharing what we knew which Mm. is essentially what the first book was about Mm. to sharing what we owned which is Mm. the circular economy Mm. to now sharing what we can make and at the time when i finished the book i just speculated that maybe there is another i looked at the cooperative movement and the way in that that's you know less so in my country, but but more so around the world, but the way in which that has grown significantly Mm. and suggested that it might be possible for people on their own volition to share what they make at scale, because it Mm. used to be that the thing that stopped you from doing that, there were two things that stopped you. One was access to the means of production. Well, Mm. now we've got 3D printers, which cost a couple of hundred dollars. Mm The other was access to capital. And now we've got peer-to-peer lending services. So if you if you need money, it, it it's more available now than it used to be. Mm. And so I, I speculated that, but when COVID came along, then it it sort of proved it mm. beyond anything that I could have imagined. Because here we had things like the Mercedes Formula One design team working with the University College London Hospital mm. to create the world's first continuous breathing machine mm. of its type in a in hundred hours. I mean, remarkable production timescales. Correct. We had all sorts of alliances, you know. We had, in this country, we had a thousand face group, scrub, what they called scrub hubs, which were just people who, largely women, who mm. knew how to so. sew. And when we couldn't get our hands on any PPE, or worse, our government was buying PPE, which was already out of date, Mm. Then these women were able to make it and organize at a huge scale,
0: Mm. and
1: and fill the gap that government had led. Which Mm. is why one of the phrases I use in the book now is, communities are outperforming bureaucracies. Mm. Because I think that collective intelligence, which exists in communities, Mm. tends to be highly agile and adaptable. It's in it really often for a sense of fun. You know, if you think about hackathons and those sort of embodiments of it, whereas bureaucracies often are there to slow the process down, to jam Mm. up the works. Mm. And they, during COVID, they were found to be wanting, you know, and and I think a a number of countries, not least mine, were were found um, to to not be able to respond quickly enough to Mm. the pandemic and so i think in a way if we learn from those experiences and that's that's the big if Correct. but if we can learn from those experiences how can we tap into that strong sense of ethical well-being which existed mm. particularly at the start of the pandemic mm. and how can we recognize that you know these networks exist and they are learning from mm. one another all of the time i mean i I, the first book, I, I talked about the Occupy movement, because mm. I think social movements are fascinating examples of this. And I talked about Occupy as a, as a case in point where they generated a huge amount of interest. But when they were asked, what would success look like? They couldn't answer it. Mm. And, 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 and other groups now have since learned from that. So Extinction Rebellion have learned from Occupy. Mm. I think Black Lives Matter have learned from previous attempts at civil rights and so what what we're seeing because of largely because of technology mm. is that this cognitive surplus this collective intelligence mm. now has somewhere to go and it it is it's never been easier mm. to find your tribe you know to find the people who are interested in the same thing that you are mm. and and that's what we're seeing and i think the challenge now is do those bureaucracies and i include corporations in that category Mm. Do they want to try and stop these groups or do they want to work with them? Mm. Because I, I frankly, I don't think you can stop them. Mm. And I cite all sorts of examples in in one of the chapters in the book of biohackers and people who who are basically faced with dreadful life chances. Mm. And and when you're in that situation, when you've maybe only got months or, or at the most a couple of years to live, you'll mm. try anything. And you will look for solutions anyway. Mm. And so there's a huge amount of ingenuity within those groups. And you can't tell them, stop doing that. Mm. Their life depends upon it. Mm. So I think we have to find ways within bureaucracies, within governments to stimulate that, you know, and and I think India has been particularly good in its open um, innovation to drug research uh, uh, because, you know, the, 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 the typical approach hitherto has mm. been new drugs get or, or recycled drugs get repurposed, and some pharmaceutical tries to close them down. Correct. And, and I understand why that is. And I understand the need for regulation. Mm. But nevertheless, it's better to work with these people than to try to regulate them out of existence.
0: Mm. Well said. You also talk about collaboration, which is the key theme in your book. Um, what are some of the strategic uh, advantages uh, of uh, collaborating? And how can this be done in teams or organizations?
1: Yeah, this is one of the knowing doing gaps that I frequently point to, and, and certainly, I see it in my world of education, hmm. where, you know, there isn't a the more isolated activity, <laughs> bizarrely, than than education currently, because Everyone knows there's, there's 40 years of evidence to show that collaboration improves productivity, it imp- and leads to greater innovation, all of those things. And yet, what do we do? We put teachers in a room by themselves, mm. we give children work to do by themselves, and then we expect them suddenly to be prepared for the world beyond that, which, which expects them to work in teams. Mm. So I think we, we have to look at How do we create the necessary um, set of circumstances? What are the building blocks? And in the book, I cite a number of things like um, protocols so that you have a number of ways of conducting meetings or, you know, brainstorming sessions, which no one will get defensive about because I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen really badly Mm -hmm. Um, or rituals that, you know, build up over time over a company. Um, I, I know one organization that's got a thing called Jeff's law, which is that one of the employees Used to used to say, you know, you can't you can't go ahead with an idea until I've had a look at it. And it beca- he was his name was Jeff, mm. and he that became a kind of ritual for that organization. Mm. It didn't really mean that, but but it just meant that before we we go ahead with this, let's just run it by a few people and let's just make sure we're we're heading down the right path. Mm. So I think how we create the the sort of apparatus of 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 collaboration Mm. is is a fascinating thing. I think some places do well, uh, particularly if it's it's got a model of servant leadership. Because one of the things about servant leadership is that unlike the kind of ego-driven leadership, Mm. where let's face it, maybe 30 years ago, if you were the CEO of a company, the chances were that you would probably sat in the seat of most of the people that you were taking advice from. Mm. So you thought that you knew... How to do their job anyway? Yeah, that's impossible now. Mm. It's it, the, the the organizations are so complex now. Mm. You can't do that. So you need to have that humility that mm. goes with that. And if you're the the kind of leader, and one of the, the leaders I cite in the book is a fantastic example, was Gary Ridge from WD forty, uh, but he was the kind of person who would say, "I'm not the smartest person in the room. I need to fill the room with people who are smarter than me, Correct. and I need to be humble enough." To, to be able to take their advice, mm. and I think if 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 we can do that with the models of leadership, if we can distribute the decision making that goes with that, you know, so we, yes, we're seeing flatter organizations, but are we are we seeing d- decisions being distributed mm. down? within the organization as well. Mm. So I think I, I call that the operating system of, mm. of organizations. And I think that's what leaders now have to think very carefully about.
0: Mm-hmm. Well said, you know, I, we've been running out of time. So I only have time for one more question.
1: Oh, wow, I, we don't went think,
0: quick. <laughs> I don't know whether we'll have time for culture, but maybe I'll seek some other time for you, from you on culture some other time. But, you know, David, you have also written extensively about the need for individuals to be lifelong learners. Um, how can we encourage a culture of lifelong learning in our uh, institutions and in our society?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And and frankly, since, you know, what we've seen, what the world has seen now, since November 22, and the arrival of Chad GPT, is mm. that this AI revolution isn't something that's going to be coming along in the future. It's here now. Absolutely. And I think it has made everyone think about how they how they need to retrain, how they need to refocus. Mm. And if ever we needed a great example of the kind of things that people like me and others have been saying, which is you will have many, many different roles in your career. Correct. So your your learning never stops. If 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 you want to if you want to stay ahead of the game, you need to be constantly learning. And of course, organizations need to create the right kind of culture, the right kind mm-hmm. of um apparatus whereby you can learn. And frankly, what I think we've seen now, particularly with AI, mm-hmm. is that that doesn't always mean sitting in a training room. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a pretty inefficient way of learning. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, so many corporations are still wedded to that idea even though it's been proven not to be as effective as informal, mm. on-demand learning. So I think one of, the, one of the lessons we'll get from AI is that we will genuinely get personalized learning Correct. to suit the individual's needs. Mm. What we need to do, it seems to me, is to create the culture whereby that is part of your work. It's not mm. seen as something that you do when you go home. Correct. It's, it's it's part of your work. The learning mm. is the work.
0: Very well said. So I think I'm, I'm going to try and squeeze in one more question, because there's so much you've written in, your, in these two amazing books. And this would be my last question. How do you balance the need for innovation and the risk taking with the need for stability and security in an organization? Yeah. yeah. I, wow.
1: So many people get that wrong. And... You know, I don't. I certainly don't have all the answers within Mm -hmm. that. But I think what we need uh, is is a what I call a disciplined approach to innovation. Mm -hmm. I meet so many people who who are leaders of organisations and they want to throw everything up in the air. They've got so many great ideas. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I used to be one of those leaders, and it it doesn't work anyway long term because eventually people stop having ideas of their own because. They know this guy's going to come in and tell us what we're doing. Mm. But I also think that what happens when you put too much onto your staff too quickly is that they're going to fall over at some point. And mm. I have seen votes of no confidence in leaders, not because they didn't like them. They mm. actually did like them as as individuals, mm. but simply because they were trying to do too much too quickly and and the people who are trying to measure whether innovation has worked mm-hmm. couldn't put any specific innovation down to was it was it that factor that 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 led to the the change mm-hmm. was it that that caused things to go horribly wrong we have no idea because we we're just doing far too many things at mm-hmm. once mm-hmm. so having a more disciplined approach to innovation and I understand, you know, again with 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 the development of AI now, we are seeing things being rushed out the market mm. that aren't ready to go to market, Correct. Correct. and and that that is a big mistake. But I understand the pressures of all that. Um, and Google, you know, I think Google wanted to take a bit more time before they got their own. Absolutely,
0: little um, barred out. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think they were they were sort of forced into it. Uh, but nevertheless, it does seem to me that the 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 smart people in the room are going to are going to wait until they get uh, a, a degree of confidence mm. that that innovation is both needed and has a chance of working mm. um or, or else you can just waste a tremendous amount of money. Well, um, so yes, I understand it looks great on the TV you know to get the Elon Musk type character who seems to be betting the farm on whatever the latest <laughs> idea is. But, you know, I think things are kind of proving quite difficult for Mr. Musk right now. Absolutely. And absolutely. Because he, he, he tried to do too much too quickly.
0: Absolutely. Well said. And on that note, David, uh, you know, as I said, I could have just carried on talking to you, but uh, I've run out of time. Thank you so much for the incredible discussion about both your books. I am going to ask all our viewers and listeners to go and check out the books Uh, open how we will work, live and learn in the future. And the second one, The Power of Us on Amazon, I'm going to check them out myself. Thank you, David, for speaking to me about your books. Thank you for talking to me about collective intelligence, about so many different aspects of collaboration, about managing conflict and about, uh, you know, being lifelong learners. Thank you again for speaking to me and good luck. You're more than welcome.